Welcome everyone to the BYOS podcast. I'm your host, Parth K. Sharma. Really excited to be joining you on another episode of our show. If this is the first time you're tuning in, this is a podcast series on technology where we uh, discuss some of the most uh, exciting and emerging strands of technology across the world, like quantum, 5G, artificial intelligence, and robotics. Uh, from time to time, we also invite some amazing guests to join us uh, and talk about their careers in these fields. And so today, I am joined by just uh, such a guest. Um, he grew up in West Texas with his parents who were both educators. Uh, he began his path as an educator in high school by tutoring his mother's first grade students in math. He has two bachelor's and a master's uh, degree in education and is a passionate, uh, very passionate about Makespaces and Steam Labs. He's also the Makerspace coordinator of the Shanghai American School here at Shanghai. I'm really excited to be welcoming uh, Mr. Justin Kilgore. How are you, Mr. Justin? Doing well today. Doing well. And how are you? I'm great. Uh, and very excited to have you in our episode. I actually have known you as a teacher for quite a number of years. And today we get to talk about technology in this podcast. All righty. All right. Great. So let's begin, actually, with uh, maybe a few questions about, you know, your career, just to start off. Um, you know, you've been in this uh, education uh, industry for a long time. So maybe you could just talk about that first, actually. How long exactly have you been in the education industry and what has sparked your interest to work in makerspaces and integrate technology into classrooms for students? Uh, I've been in education for 22 years now. Um, and as you read in the bio, I started by uh, tutoring my mother's students who were behind in math. Uh, in high school, uh, I was allowed to leave for lunch. so. Uh, I'd leave one day a week and go tutor, uh, started with the student she had who had leukemia and I, he was really behind. So I went and tutored him to keep him up in math. Um, and then, um, when he passed, I just kept going and kept tutoring, uh, tutored her students all the way through college. I would schedule my, uh, classes in university around, having time to go to her school a couple days a week. So, and uh, yeah, I started in elementary education. Um, uh, a job I took many years ago, uh, they needed a robotics coach and I'd been integrating at the time, very simple tech, but into the classroom and uh, agreed to coach the elementary school robotics team and quickly found that I could use that robot to teach a lot of the math concepts. So wrote a grant and got a bunch of robots and started a old uh, RCX blocks by um, Lego and started using them to teach mm -hmm. math lessons and then started training other teachers how to use them in the core curriculum. And once the makerspace movement kind of began with uh, library makerspaces and they started to become popular a little over a decade ago, decade 15 years ago uh, I got involved with those so it's kind of just snowballed from there got it got it so I didn't actually know that you were you know you started out with a lot of math based interests so you were really interested in math right yeah um, in college I had flip-flopped around majors um, 
I had decided on mechanical engineering and then I wanted to change again. And my mother asked me why I didn't just become a teacher because I was always in her classroom. And um, so I thought about it and decided, yeah, I'd like to teach math and science. Wow, got it. It seems like, you know, you have a family of educators, which is which is really cool and explains why, you know, you got into the profession as well. And something interesting is that you have taught in many parts of the world. So, you know, I'd like to ask, which parts of the world have you taught in and how has the role of technology been different in these different parts of the world that you've taught in? I'm curious to know. Um, I've taught in America, uh, in Texas, Ohio, and Kentucky. And I've taught in Turkey and I've taught here in China. Um, through my career in maker spaces and STEAM programs, I've met a lot of teachers from around the world at different conferences. And uh, I've heard a lot of stories about how tech is used in their schools as well. And I think there are two factors there. I don't know if you can delineate it by country. I think it's easier to look at it economically. Schools that have the financial resources uh, tend to have more technology um, because it's very expensive and you have to constantly be updating and buying new stuff. Um, And the other factor is cultural. So there are some programs in some schools that they don't want technology in the classroom. I got an interview once through a recruiter in America for a school in Atlanta, Georgia, who was a no-tech school. They had no technology at all, no computers except for the administration's office, and it was interesting. And then you also have, like, with your lower uh, or your uh, preschools, Reggio Emilia education, where it's, you know, all tactile-based and there's no technology at all involved. So... It's either cultural in that regards, educational philosophy, or economics probably being the biggest barrier. Understood. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, financial is definitely a factor. I mean, if you don't have the money, it's hard to invest in technology. But I am very interested about the culture side of it. Uh, in, in, In the places you've taught, which which culture do you think amongst the American, Turkish, and Chinese uh, has been the most receptive to you know allowing technology into the classroom? Um, I would honestly have to say it would be China thus far, but I am teaching uh, or working at uh, a private school in China, so. To answer that question, I would really have to have a finger on the pulse of public education systems in China because that's who uh, educates the masses. So uh, just from my experience, only definitely China uh, embraces technology in the classroom more. Yeah, I mean, that is true. You're teaching in China, but not in the Chinese public schools. So, the you know, you're teaching an international school with international students. But I think, irrespective of that, China definitely is very, very technology-based. I think even in the public schools, they are, you know, embracing technology a lot as well. But that is uh, pretty interesting to talk about. Um, and now, leading off from the finance factor that you mentioned, you know, schools need finances to invest in technology. I would like to just get right into the discussion about, you know, Steam Labs and makerspaces. And the first question being, um, you know, why should schools 
invest in in steam labs or makerspaces uh there's definitely everybody knows there's a lot of upfront cost of buying all the equipment 3d printers as everyone knows uh you know uh the upfront cost of buying all the equipment 3d printers laser cutters uh wood cutters there's there's a lot of you know it's very expensive and so do you think the benefits of of establishing a steam lab pay off or or does it depend I think it depends. Uh, I think the first place or one way to start looking at it is no one would ask that question about a sports department. Um, why does the school have a sports department? A gym and all the equipment have a lot of upfront costs. What are the benefits? I think we will get to that same place with makerspaces at a point that no one would ask that question once they proliferate enough around the educational community. Um, you're right, the upstart cost of a makerspace are quite high, but they don't have to be. Um, you can create a steam lab or makerspace without really expensive equipment, and you don't have to do a lot of woodworking. Um, you could start small and expand up, but you definitely do have benefits and payoffs in that in a lot of different areas. One, if you're a high school and you're run, running programs like a design institute, which we have here at SAS, or a um, design technology course from IB, having a makerspace, a well-equipped one, really aids in that coursework. Also, it allows a lot of hands-on integration uh, into other core content areas. So in my view, a makerspace should be reaching out to other content areas and using the makerspace as a tool to help with learning, um, often in a hands-on way that they may not get in class. Uh, I kind of view it like an extension of a library. You just have another resource that students can use to learn. Um, and over time, it also kind of creates that culture with students that they can build and they can make. And at SAS, I've had quite a few students already this year come in from science, wanting to perform science uh, experiments uh, for an IB paper or an AP paper. And we have all the equipment to fabricate whatever they need to perform those experiments. So that ability to individualize or to you know, run a program for math and the math numbers is very beneficial. Just gives the teachers another resource. Right. So what you're saying is that, you know, makerspaces are not something that, you know, students necessarily do in isolation, but they are like, uh, you know, normal libraries where uh, you have to, you go to the library to extend your knowledge on things that you're already doing in science, math, history. So you're saying that's how makerspaces are going to be, where we can use the makerspace to, uh, you know, perform experiments or to do things in the pre-existing curriculum. Yes, um, that, that's my view. There are schools that will run a specific class uh, in their STEAM program or their makerspace program. And those models do work pretty well, but I prefer the models that are more authentic, where we're supporting the core content standards that the teachers are trying to teach, whether I'm working with English or music or social studies or design technology, all those kids have of the equal opportunity to the lab and its resources. Got it. Okay. Got it. So, 
Um, now going a little bit deeper into makerspaces, you know, you work with makerspaces every day, and so surely you're you know familiar with you know a lot of all the equipment in there. So, um, what do you think are some of the most useful machines in the Steam Lab? You know, uh, 3D printers or laser cutters, and what which ones do you think tend to be most used by students? And which is your personal favorite, actually? All right. Um, well, the the most important thing in the makerspace is even a high school makerspace. Um, the one at SAS uh, is really unique. Um, out of all the makerspace professionals I've met that are in education, the only schools that have facilities like this are normally universities or community makerspaces. And so even with the level of equipment we have here, Cardboard and scissors and pin knives, uh, cardboard prototyping, rapid prototyping is inexpensive and is in a very important part of a makerspace, regardless of how sophisticated it is. Um, we have a lot of equipment here, but I my favorite is probably 3D printers um, because of their entry point level. So... In the world of CNC machines um, and CAM manufacturing, there's a lot of equipment. Uh, we have two laser cutters here, a plasma cutter, a CNC route, an industrial quality CNC router, and a CNC milling machine. Um, mills out blocks of metal. Um, but all of that equipment has a huge learning curve, and it is very expensive and can be very dangerous to operate. Um, 3D printers, on the other hand, they can be very expensive, but they don't have to be. Uh, Creality um, offers an Ender 3 printer that can get a kid into understanding CNC for 1200 RMB or less than 200 US dollars. And just giving them that insight into additive manufacturing that they can begin, begin to understand how G-code is slowly revolutionizing our entire world. They're 3D printing bridges, houses, rocket ships now. Um, and it just gives kids a safe uh, 3D printer's not going to hurt you. You can get a burn from the hot end if you're not careful, but nothing that's even a trip to a nurse. So they're safe, they're inexpensive, and they're moddable. I mean, the, a lot of my students here uh, hack their own firmware. They flash Marlin or RapRap to their printers. Uh, they design infusion additional parts to their printers or replacement parts or upgrade them. And that whole process is really great with 3D printers because it's safe, it's compact, and it's affordable. Got it. So I think this would be a good time to actually, you know, now transition into 3D printers specifically. It's it's uh, one of the things that we are going to talk about today. Um, so what is so special? Uh, we know that 3D printers have taken off in the past, uh, you know, decade or so, and uh, they are in much more, many more locations than they were in the industry, in schools. And what exactly is it about 3D printing that makes it so special, that makes it so attractive to institutions? Uh, what do you think? Because it's accessible. Um, if you have, especially for uh, schools. Um, so if you're a school, you are, have a bunch of teachers, a bunch of educators that are trained as educators. Um, you generally don't have um, engineers or uh, 
are engineers sitting around the school. So a lot of that equipment that's in makerspace is, is hard to learn and it takes a lot of time to maintain it and learn it. But you can order a 3D printer and nowadays anyone can learn to print. Third graders can learn to print on a 3D printer and a lot of them are plug and play versus like, uh, you know, a, a plasma cutter, something that will cut sheet metal, but you have to be able to handwrite G-code to work it. It's very dangerous. You have to have a special facility. They're really expensive um, on and on, but a 3D printer you can buy off Taobao. It shows up three days later, and you have kids actively printing in the next day. Got it. So, you know, what? personally, when I think of 3D printers, I feel like the reason why it's so special and it makes us think about the future of technology is because it allows for people to print and bring into uh, the physical manifestation of what they were imagining. Um, and so to what extent do you think that's true? Uh, I think that's a very valid point. Um, in general, outside of education, uh, I think they're popular because they do just that. They also give the common person, if they have an interest, uh, a way to design and manufacture things to improve their life. Uh, one of my favorite examples that I share with students that I'm sure you've heard is uh, my son. Uh, he was about a year old and we had one of those play pins for babies and it had these holes in it. And he had started putting his foot in and lifting up and I was scared he was going to lose his center of gravity um, one day and just fall on top of his head over the gate. And so I grabbed a pair of calipers. I measured the holes in the baby gate. Uh, drop, jumped on Tinkercad, designed something really quick, 3D printed a bunch of them and put them on the little baby gate. And, you know, he couldn't put his foot in and risk falling over. So those everyday solutions to make life better or safer um, that anyone can do, I think is what has made 3D printing so popular. Yeah, I remember you gave that example last year, and uh, it's it's one of the you know one of the one of the examples that shows how three D printing can really create solutions on the go if there's a three D printer around you. In fact, last year it was my mom's birthday, and I didn't I didn't want to create you know just a paper card like usual, and so I I, I thought why don't I create a three D printed card, and it occurred to me so many years later because I I have a three D printer around at school for so many years but I've never thought of that and so it was really it was really cool it was really simple easy and much better to create like a 3d printed birthday card um, so that could be you know a suggestion for you listeners out there it's 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 really cool and it's not not that hard either and that's actually a great transition into the next point which I think will be a big point uh, you know often technologies make their way into households first they're in the industry and then they make their ways into households like desktop uh, computers and you know laptops they made their way into personal uh, individuals lives I don't think that 3d printing has really reached that stage yet uh, definitely not because most people don't have a 3d printer at home um, so mr. Justin what do you think about 3d printers penetrating into the households market in the future do you think it's gonna happen uh, I think it will happen eventually it will take quite a while. Like any technology, there are a lot of barriers um, to getting it there. Right now, 3D printers are in the realm of hobbyist and industry. Um, 
there's still a lot of development to be done to get them to where they're plug and play for everyone. I mean, there are proprietary machines out there um, that are pretty much plug and play where the person only has to design the CAD file um, or even select one off something like Things First and then load it and the machine does all the work. We have one such industrial machine here. Um, however, those type of machines are very expensive right now. And then when you get into the affordable ones, again, they're more hobbyist. You're only going to get people who are interested in them. But at some point, um, it will get to where those machines do have a very reliable system and their cost comes way down. And someone, they may not have to have uh, CAD skills, um, they may just pick from a menu, think of things first. There are all kinds of files you can download on things first and print. So at some point, they will get there. Um, think of a robo the robot vacuums, the Roombas. I mean, just five years ago, six years ago, those were a luxury or just coming around, and now they're everywhere. So it just takes a while to fine-tune that technology down um, and build a culture around it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like 3D printers would be such a nice thing to have in the in the house. You know, you create something that you want and you have a printer that will make it. I mean, I, I remember back in grade six, uh, 3D printers used to be like this magic machine that would produce any toy you want. And so what exactly I feel what, what I feel is stopping it right now uh, might be the you know, high costs of a good 3D printer because the ones that are low costs are pretty slow. So do you think that the, the high costs and low speed of 3D printers is what's stopping it from the household community uh, primarily? Or do you think that people don't need one? That's why it's not working because there are a lot of 3D printers that are feasibly priced, but it's still not, you know, taking off into, you know, personal people's households. So what do you think about that? Um... There, there are machines that would work in that regard, but again, they're expensive. Um, think of a water boiler in your home. Um, if, if you have a pot in a stove, that's all you need to boil water, but everyone has a little water boiler, including me, that plugs into the wall. So um, think of a 3D printer like that. Not everyone would ever, prob not everyone would want one, but at some point, it will become more common. Um, but it's also always going to be leaning more toward people on the creative side, uh, people who are interested in making or have the time to design and make things would be much more interested. I don't think we'll get to a point where it's like Star Trek, where you walk up and tell the machine what you want and come back 10 minutes later and get what you need. Um, right, right, right. But uh, the hobbyist or people who have an interest, every year it becomes more accessible and more reliable. And the materials become safer to work with and um, cheaper. Uh, right now there's a company that is uh, making a filament that you can print on any PLA 3D printer. And then you ship that product off to them and they put it through a process that cures it into metal um, and they mail you back the metal part. So the uh, filament you're okay. printing has a certain chemical component to it 
and you can't cure it at home, but you send it off and whether it be a part for a bicycle or a lawnmower or, you know, you're, you're restoring a, you know, an old hot rod car and you need a custom part, design it, print it, send it off to them and you'll get a metal part back a few days later. And they're setting up curing stations all, all, all over the United States. So they're hoping to hit that, that market of people. Uh, I think it will look different than what you may typically be imagining, but I think it will work its way into more and more households over time. Got it. Okay. Right. And and another thing um, people often overlook is that you can't have a 3D printer at home and just, you know, make things out of it. The thing is you need to be able to model things digitally and, you know, send it over to the 3D printer. And that's where software gets involved. Often people just think about the printer itself, the hardware, but forget about the software. So um, there's a lot of softwares that can be used, 3D modeling softwares in conjunction with a 3D printer. Um, as you mentioned earlier in this podcast, Tinkercad is one of the softwares that people use and seems to be one that you really like. So why don't you talk about Tinkercad? You know, why is it so popular in schools and how does it integrate? How does it work in integration with 3D printing? Well, Tinkercad is probably my favorite program in the world just because of its accessibility point. I mean, you can teach a third grader how to model in Tinkercad in 3D print, and in an hour you can teach a third grader how to make stuff in in Tinkercad. Um, And it's very accessible to adults who have no background in CAD design or uh, any interest in it, really. So... It, it really is a very special, unique uh, program made uh, by AutoCAD. Um, and I just love it, again, because of its accessibility point. Anybody can learn it. Uh, it ha- definitely has its limitations. Um, there's a lot of things you can't do with Tinkercad if you're, if you're trying to design more sophisticated parts. Um, but in general, it will do pretty much anything an average person would want to design um and again the threshold is low the learning curve is low um programs like uh sketchup which you know is for rendering not really creating uh manufact cam models um but uh things like sketchup fusion solidworks they have quite a large learning curve right right so and there's not much there's not much in between. Um, I used Fusion almost exclusively now, but I still go back to Tinkercad and play now and then just because it's fun. Right. So the main reason is how simple it is um, and how fast people can start creating with it. Um, and that's, I think, I guess that explains more than enough why it would be used in a school because, you know, for primary school students, even for senior students, simplicity is very important. Um, personally, for the BYOS project, you know, we used SketchUp and Blender, and definitely the learning curve is quite high there. I mean, those are sophisticated uh, 3D modeling architecture sites. So, uh, Tinkercad, that simplicity is probably key. If you're. I thought of a great example for Tinkercad as it relates to your previous question about 3D printers in homes. So uh, it was I maybe two years ago now, I forget, but uh, I was at SSIS and I offered a workshop to parents during the school day on 3D printing. And it was supposed to be a half day uh, course and they were 
going to, you know, create a Tinkercad account and design a little keychain with their name on it and 3D print it. And I had about 20 people sign up, um, all mothers. I didn't have any fathers come to that one. And <laughs> they absolutely loved it. Um, they, I couldn't get them out of the, the lab. They kept wanting to design and try to print. And I told them we have a class coming in like 30 minutes. And literally the class was at the door waiting for them to get out of the lab. And they still wanted to stay. So, you know, I think that's in, in it, it's a great example of how addicting that can be once you get someone started and they were so happy when they came back and picked up their keychains because they had designed it they had made it they had printed it and so yeah anyone can learn to do it yeah definitely i mean i have experience in you know creating something from scratch and software and then you know having it end up in my hands is just a truly special feeling it feels like that object came out of your imagination it's like you own that object entirely especially if it's something you designed custom it's it's a very special feeling also i have um, you know read about tinkercad that one thing it does really well and i find really cool honestly is that multiple students can work on a on the same tinkercad file in the same time real time is that is that true uh, that feature, I don't know if they've added it. As I said, I primarily work in Fusion uh, 360 now. In fact, I have not looked at any of the few uh, Tinkercad updates in quite a while now. They very well may do that now. If they have, that would be fabulous. Um, as long as uh, they're not uh, uh, messing up each other's designs, doing and undoing something at the same time. <laughs> Uh, that would be a neat feature to have. Yeah, I think uh, a few months ago, I, I was talking to one of the teachers at SSIS, Mr. Victor, actually. He said that they added this feature um, of of co-development, and uh, I thought I thought you might have tried it, but either way, I think that's really no. cool. Yeah. Yeah, and Tinkercad, Tinkercad does more than just uh, 3D modeling. It actually has fabulous simulators for physical computing. Um, uh, and breadboard prototyping. You can drop an Arduino in there, a Raspberry Pi, a micro bit, any digital version of those, and lay down the schematics of your, your board and all of your components and write your code and test it all in Tinkercad, all digitally. So Tinkercad has a lot of, of elements that are really cool. Yeah, the only thing additional I'd mention about uh, Tinkercad, and it's not about Tinkercad, it's about uh, CAD access point software in general. So this happens a lot in education, or at least in my field of education. Um, there's Tinkercad, and then there's nothing in between. There's no scaffolding. Um, imagine you had, you know, you stopped dividing, or, you know, you div were dividing fractions in third grade, and then all of a sudden you jump up to intro to calculus. It's kind of like that with a lot of makerspace resources. Um, Tinkercad's fabulous, but there's nothing out there that's just halfway between Tinkercad and something like Fusion 360, which has a massive learning curve. Um, there's nothing there. And so those missing pieces to the puzzle do have an effect on us as educators. So 
though it's not a weakness at Tinkercad, I would love to see someone make a, a software that was as good as Tinkercad and free like Tinkercad is, but that was the building point or the scaffolding point up to something like SolidWorks or Fusion or SketchUp. Oh, okay, okay. So that's a pretty, I think, interesting insight from an educator's point that seems to be too big of a jump, you mean, from Tinkercad to something way harder than it. So it's not like a, there's nothing in between. No, and there's a lot of resources. It's the same with the vector drawings. Um, Tinkercad does very basic vectors. Um, but you pretty much go from even Tinkercad for vectors up to Inkscape or um, uh, Coral Draw or Adobe Illustrator. Uh, there's there's a few pieces of vector software out there like Vector.com and Vectinator that try to do that, but they just don't do it well. Not on the level that Autodesk did with Tinkercad. So, and it's it was the same with. Uh, um, uh, prototyping of electronics uh, until Microbit. And Microbit has filled the gap really well, but before Microbit, you know, you kind of had your makey-makeys, which were just really simple, and then you jumped right up to Arduino, which is, you know, much more advanced uh, prototyping board or microcontroller. So those gaps uh, we see as educators quite a bit. Got it. Okay. Well, that was a, I think it was a really great discussion on you know a bunch of things, uh, Steam Labs in general, makerspaces, then 3D printing and Tinkercad. Uh, thank you, Mr. Justin, for joining us. I would like to actually, before we end the you know episode, I'd like to uh, actually do this. We always do this fun little rapid fire segment, so let's go ahead and do that. All right. I'll just be asking you a couple of quick questions on uh, some random things, and uh, all you have to do is fastest response possible. So let's start. Okay. What phone is in your pocket? Uh, iPhone 11. What would be your favorite tech company? Uh, Creality. How much screen time do you average a day? Oh, uh, uh, at work, probably four hours a day, five hours a day. Home, maybe 20 minutes a day. Wow. What's your favorite book? Uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. What's your favorite food? Uh, manta, a type of Turkish ravioli. What do you love most about your job? Everything. <laughs> What's the one tip you would give to a 20-year-old version of you? Start having kids sooner. What's your hobby? Uh, my job. What did you want to be when you were young? A fireman. Where do you see yourselves in the next 30 years? Uh, hopefully advising other schools on how to build maker spaces and staff them. Wow, interesting, really interesting. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Justin, for joining us today on this episode. It was a great discussion, uh, one of the better ones we've had so far. And um, uh, thank you so much for joining again. And thank you for having me. Have a great day, Parth. Yeah, have a great day too, Mr. Justin. See you. See you. Hope you guys enjoyed as well, and uh, see you all in the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>